There is no children's church this morning, so would all of you please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. The, the notes are in the uh, bulletin. You can follow along there. And we'll begin this morning by reading Genesis chapter 3 in its entirety. Over the last three or four Sundays, we've looked first at Genesis 1, then Genesis 2, then Genesis chapter 3 for a number of reasons, but not the least of which is because these are foundational chapters in our understanding of life, why we are here, and what's gone wrong, and what will fix what has gone wrong, and who are we, and we've already looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and now we'll look at Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit to eat. And I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and against between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And the man called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, we've looked at some chapters in the Bible in the last few weeks, Genesis 1 and 2, that have come under heavy attack in recent years, but I I would venture to guess that Genesis 3 is right up there as one of the more ridiculed, scoffed at, maligned chapters in the Bible. I mean, think about it. 
We have a talking snake. We have an angel with a flaming sword. And we have all those cartoon stick drawings of Adam and Eve we've seen all over the place. This, this is a scoffed at chapter of the Bible. Many people view it as a just so story. You know, how the serpent lost his legs. And yet, it is hard to make sense of the rest of Scripture without a firm understanding of Genesis chapter 3. It is hard to understand. I've said before, all of us operates from a worldview. And a worldview deals with some foundational questions. Who am I? Well, Genesis 1 answered that question. You are the creation of the living God. You are not autonomous. You are owned. But more than that, you bear his image. And you have a dignity. And you have a glory, not your own, that is given to you by your creator. That's who you are. Why am I here? It's the next question a worldview answers. Well, we begin to see in chapter two that God wanted the man to tend to the garden, to exercise dominion over the earth, to bear fruit and to multiply. Why are we here? To serve and glorify God. He has work for us to do. That's why we are here. He has purposes for us, not the least of which is to know him in relationship. And then every other worldview has to ask the question, what went wrong. As it's painfully apparent to everyone, something is wrong. We're going to answer that question here today. And we're going to get a glimmer of the final worldview question. How can what, be, what is made wrong be made right? We're going to try to look at that today as well. Genesis 3 and the battle against God. The battle against God. This is where God's creation revolts, becomes his enemy, picks up arms against him. And we're to look at it in three parts, the temptation and fall, hiding from God, and judgment and grace. Now, before we dive in, I gotta talk about this serpent. Just wanna make a couple observations. There are some Eastern religions that imagine that there is a good being and a bad being Posed in an eternal struggle. Genesis 3 settles that issue as nonsense right out of the gate. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Serpent is a created being. He is not another God, the dark God. There is no struggle. He is part of the living God's creation. Now, Genesis 3 doesn't get into questions of, well, why did God make the creep? We, we don't know that here. We do know he's part of the creation. And he's said to be more crafty, but that word for crafty um, is a word that in, in, in better creatures can mean prudent. In Proverbs 12, 23, for instance, same exact word for crafty here, a prudent man conceals knowledge. Proverbs 14, 15, the prudent gives thoughts to his steps. So it's, it's contextually determined. In a, in a creature with guile, this moves towards craft and cunning and conniving. In, in a more righteous individual, this is prudence and wisdom. The serpent could see the angles. He was clever. This doesn't therefore prove that God made the serpent evil. Satan's fall has occurred at some point already since the beginning of the creation week. And again, Genesis 3 is not interested in answering those questions. Well, how did Satan fall? Doesn't tell us. But what it does jump right into is a serpent's line of attack. The serpent is here to tempt the woman. To tempt the woman. He, he knows that she's going to be the easier target for him. And he gets her somewhat alone to himself. And we're to look at the temptation in three phases. And first, we're to look at the first question. The first question. Satan is clever. He's smart. He doesn't begin with a frontal assault. He doesn't come to Eve and say, you know what? You should really cast your lot with me, baby. You should just fight God. He's a liar. He's, he's a jerk. And you and me, we can take him on. He doesn't do that. He just asks a question. Now, it's a loaded question, but he asks a question. Did, did, God, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? I mean, I'm just asking questions here. I want, I want you to see that dialogue and questions are not always morally neutral. Our culture loves dialogue. Dialogue can be a great thing, but be careful. We just assume dialogue is always good. 
dialogue is always helpful. Not always. Here's a very bad dialogue and discussion. And a lot can be done through insinuation, understatement, and guile and suggestion. Because in this question that the serpent asks is, is loaded a ton of assumptions. First, there's a total focus and exaggeration on God's one prohibition. God had told them back in chapter 2, if you, if you look back to chapter 2, where God gives the man the commandment, Eve was not yet made when God gave Adam the commandment. So Eve did not receive this commandment directly from God that we know of. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There it is, one prohibition, one law, one rule. Every other tree you can eat. You're in paradise. And then God makes him a wife who's perfect in every respect. And this couple is in perfect love, in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship with their God and creator. And the serpent comes in and he just narrows her focus on the one prohibition and expands it. He makes an honest mistake. Did he say you couldn't touch every tree? And of course, what he's doing here, and this is, this is what's so subtle and so pernicious, he is encouraging Eve to sit in judgment on God and his word. To sit in judgment on God and his word. See, up until this point, God has declared, God has spoken. If you start in Genesis 1, let there be light, there's light. And there's no feedback from the universe about what they think of that. Two thumbs up, God. Good job. No, God gives the feedback. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. He comes and he speaks to the man. And again, nobody is sitting on the sidelines tallying up a commentary on what they think of what God's done. Well, I would have done it a little differently. But here, that's exactly what the serpent is encouraging Eve to do. Eve, what do you think of this rule? And of course, the insinuation is, it's a bit heavy-handed of God, isn't it? It's, it's a bit restrictive, would a loving God really restrict you in such ways? And, and she's tempted now to sit in judgment on God, which is the thing we must never do. We don't get to sit in judgment of God and his word. His word and he sits in judgment on us. We, we've got to be careful when we find ourselves wanting to evaluate what God has said, N- not so that we can understand it and obey it, but so that we can decide what we think about it. That's how the serpent begins his attack. He focuses on the one restriction, which we, we can all do that. My, my, my son is not here this morning, so I can tell this story, but, but I remember once, a, a year or so ago, we were getting ready, we were putting, going through our evening ritual, putting him to bed, and we read him a story. And this night, he wanted us to read him two stories. And we said, no, Abner, we're, we're only going to read you one story. He started to cry, and then said, well, then I don't want any stories. And it's kind of silly, but we've all done that. We have all so obsessed with the one thing we can't have that it ruins everything else we have. Here's, here's the one thing you can't have, Eve. The serpent, craftily, subtly, narrows her focus on that one thing. And she's, we're going to see, she and the man are going to be willing to throw paradise away for that. Total focus and exaggeration on God's one prohibition and an encouragement to sit in judgment to God and his word. Now, what could Eve have said in, in response here? Eve could have said, Serpent, are you, are you off your rocker? Look, I live in paradise. I'm married to a man who loves me, who honors and respects me. I'm in fellowship with God. We've got all these trees, all these fruits. So what if there's one tree we can't touch? Do, do you really want me to, to make God my enemy? Do you, do you want me to, to, to break and risk my relationship with him because of one silly tree that I can't touch? Get lost. But she doesn't do that. Now, she hasn't gone fully to the point of rebellion yet, but she's, she misses what's been smuggled in. She misses all of the arrogance of the serpent. How dare he question what God has said? How dare he encourage her to sit in judgment on his word? She, she misses all of that. What's her response? 
God said, you shall not eat of the... Well, no, she said, the woman said to the serpent, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Well, that's good so far. She, she gets that one right. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, notice there's an addition here. God never said anything about not touching the tree. There's two possibilities. Because... She wasn't present when God spoke the commandment to Adam. It's possible that Adam, as a measure of protecting his wife further, added in the further stipulation. Well, if we're not to eat it, let's just not even touch it. That's possible. It's also possible that Eve's heart is already beginning to feel a little indignant. She's already beginning to see this as oppressive. And she's exaggerating again. She's following suit. The serpent exaggerated by saying, you can't touch anything. Well, that's not as bad as it is, but... We can't even touch this tree. Which then the serpent emboldened moves on from his first question to direct contradiction. Notice how quickly this moves from simply asking questions to now bold face contradicting God. He says, You will not surely die. Now there it is, right? There it is. Now, now we've got. The truth and the lie. We've got God's word and the serpent's word. And then the whole issue is going to be, what will Eve believe? What will she choose to, to believe? What's in front of her? Will she believe the living God and his interpretation of this tree? Or will she believe the snake, the serpent, and his interpretation? Because now there's no possible way of, of reconciling these two views. You will die. No, you won't. It's also interesting to note that the serpent begins his attack by a denial of divine judgment. The denial of divine judgment. And so often, this is exactly where things start to leak out in the church. If you look to the, uh, if you look to the, the churches, the denominations that have over time gone more and more liberal, it almost always starts with the denial of judgment and hell. Because once we can remove God's ability to punish... We're free to do what we want without consequence, right? And our world loves the picture of a loving God and struggles very difficultly with how a loving God could be wrathful. The serpent goes right at the, right at the, the stick, the threat. You won't die. And this is his common, common refrain through the ages. There is no judgment waiting man. There is no accounting for what we've done, and if there is, surely your best efforts will be good enough. No, nothing new is under the sun. And then the real carrot gets brought out. Look at this, the serpent's response here. The real carrot gets brought out. The serpent said to the woman, verse 4, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. And here we have the promise of independent knowledge. The promise of independent knowledge. I want you to get this. All of us are creatures, okay? Hopefully everyone's on the same page with that. There's no one here who's uncreated. By virtue of being created, you are a creature. It's not meaning it as a slur. And that means that we are totally dependent upon God for everything we know. We have to be dependent on God that he made us such that our senses work properly, that our memory works properly, that our eyesight works properly, that our brains work properly. And we've seen people who, who those things, those functions, those facilities don't work properly. And, and, and so we are completely dependent that God has made us in a way that fits with the world so that what we see is really there and what we hear is really spoken and what we touch and feel is really there. But more than that... We are dependent on God to understand life and the universe and everything. You know, one of the truths about God being transcendent, and by transcendent I mean he is not part of the created order. He is over the created order. Now, he has invaded time and space in the incarnation that we just celebrated, but God is transcendent. And one of the implications of God's transcendence is that we cannot work our way up by pulling our own bootstraps up to the knowledge of God, rightly. Another way of saying that is if God doesn't choose to reveal himself, we cannot know him. 
We are dependent on him to tell us about who he is. And he reveals himself in creation, and he reveals himself in the conscience, and he reveals himself in his word, and he revealed himself most fully in his son, Jesus Christ. But if God did not reveal himself, if God did not condescend to make himself known, we could not know him. All of our knowledge is dependent. Our our desire as Christians is not independent thinking, really, but dependent thinking. Our, Our desire should be as Christians, we want to think God's thoughts after him. B.B. Warfield um, at Princeton famously said that upon his retirement, it is my great pleasure to announce there has not been a single original thought here in 40 years. And he said that with pride. Because... At that time, Princeton was a seminary, and its desire was, we want to think God's thoughts after him. But here, the woman is promised the ability, you don't have to depend on God to know things. Because, of course, the serpent's already now insinuated that God's motives are mixed. Maybe God is capricious, jealous, petty, withholding. And so, how do you know you can trust him? He says the tree is bad, but how do you know? Wouldn't it be better to know for yourself? It's the promise that you and I and the woman could become sources of truth. Independent. I don't need God. I can figure things out all by myself. I can know on my own. That's what's being offered here, is come out from under God's thumb, as the serpent's trying to put it, and be a knower equal along with him. Know as he knows. We can't really ever achieve such nonsense. We can never know as God knows. But that's the promise. It's a promise here. And the desire for autonomy, the desire to break free of God, to live independently, that's that's what's going on here. Serpent's saying, look, you don't want to have to live day in and day out trusting this God to tell you what's true and what's right and what's good. Go find out for yourself. We live in a day where, where this is celebrated. I mean, what's the common refrain? To thine own self be true, follow your heart. Well, briefly, let me just give you a word. The Bible is very clear on what the scripture thinks about us following our hearts. Numbers fifteen thirty nine. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, and not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. That's what God thinks about following your heart. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're going to follow the commandments of the Lord and not your own heart and your own eyes. Or Jeremiah 13.10, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them. See, see, God doesn't want us to just sort of act out of what comes out of us because we're sources of truth. God knows we're broken, we're sinful. We need to think dependently. We need to renew our minds with his word. We need to act upon this and not this. Because I know me and I can be a jerk. Independent knowledge, he contradicts. And And the woman here says nothing. And we get this terrible statement. In verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight for the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Notice the threefold appeal further of this tree. It was good for food, a delight for the eyes, and desirable to make one wise. This is the trifecta that John uses in 1 John 2 to describe everything appealing about the world. Listen to this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. See, Eve is, is consumed, point two here, by the desire to be God rather than to love God. She'd rather be like him, alongside of him, his fellow, his peer, than to love and obey him. 
And this is exactly how Paul's commentary on Romans 1 speaks about the origins of sin. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. Eve cast her lot with the creation rather than the creator. It's sparkly. It's tasty. I want it. I want what I can see and what I can touch and what's right in front of me more than I want him. And this then finally leads to the total inversion of the created order. I want you to get this. The total inversion of the created order. So what is, what is the created order originally? You've got God over all, right? You've got God over all. And under God are his image bearers. The chief image bearer is the man. And then God creates a helpmeet, another image bearer, the woman. But we know from the rest of Scripture and even from hints here that Adam was given the charge over Eve, that he was the leader in the relationship. One of the ways we know that is Adam is taken and he names the animals. And then when Eve is brought to him, he names her. It's a sign of authority. And so the order is God overall, and then Adam, and then right alongside of Adam, just a little lower, is Eve. In, in the authority structure, and then they are to rule and subdue all the animals and all the earth. And what do we have in this temptation? We have on top a talking snake, the creation, who then gives instructions to the woman, who then leads her husband in rebellion against God. You have the complete and total inversion of the created order. Everything is upside down here. And so much... So much consequences come out of that one little phrase, she took and eat. There's a, there's a profound quote by Derek Kidner in his Genesis commentary. Just listen to this. So simple the act, so hard the undoing. God himself will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. So simple the act, so hard the undoing. God himself will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Well, this then leads from the temptation and fall to hiding from God. And the text says that they immediately, their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. You see, they do know good and evil, but not like God knows good and evil. God knows evil from the outside. God knows evil the way a surgeon is familiar with cancer. They know evil the way a cancer patient is familiar with cancer. It's in and through them. So there's a half-truth to what the serpent promised. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil, but in a very, very different way. And of course, they will be slaves to evil. It will rule them. And they feel the crushing weights of guilt and shame. Their eyes both were opened. Verse 7, they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, before we talk about what they did, what should they have done at this point? What would be the only sane response? Let's, let's take into account what we've done. The man and the woman have just disobeyed God's one rule. That God said, you will die when you do this. Now, what do they know about God? They know he's powerful. They know he's the creator. They know he's wise. What's the only sane response? Beg for forgiveness and mercy, right? Now, they didn't know this yet, but we know from Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God will not despise God never turns away in anger, broken repentance, contrition, turning to him, looking to him for forgiveness, looking to his son without excuses. I messed up. I was wrong. Please forgive me. God never despises that. I mean, even the Ninevites who Jonah was to go to, without scripture, they were able to figure this out. Listen to, listen to the account in Jonah 3, 7 to 9 of their reasoning. And they didn't have scripture. 
The king issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The men at Nineveh knew nothing of the gospel, knew nothing of God's promises, but this thought occurred to the king. Who knows? It, it, it can't be worth it. It, it can't hurt to try. Let's, let's, let's humble ourselves and repent and call on God for mercy. Maybe, maybe he'll turn. Adam and Eve should have done that, should have thought that, and I'll always wonder what the story would have looked like had they done that, but they didn't. Instead, point B, they turn to a false salvation. They're going to make themselves some clothes. And everything's going to be all right. Stupid. Sin makes us stupid. I want you to get this. Adam and Eve, perfect genetics. Probably the most inherently brilliant couple ever to exist. Here's a man who is able to zoologically classify all the animals in an afternoon with names that meant things based on what they were like. Without a notepad, without an assistant, without a pocket calculator or an iPhone, he's able, God's bringing the animals by and he's just classifying them. This is brilliance. And here's Adam and Eve. They've incurred the death penalty. They've made God their enemy. They're, they're promised to die. His solution? We can just get ourselves some clothes. I think we can get through this. It's stupid. But sin makes us stupid. We all know this. The, the stupid justifications that we use for our sin. The stupid plans we've got to get out of the trouble we're in. Sin makes us stupid. <laughs> and yet, You can't return to innocence. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to go back like nothing happened. You can't return to innocence. You can't. The only way is to move forward. God's going to provide a hope here. And it's not by going back to innocence, but forward to the cross. They hide from God. Which, by the way, knocks out another common notion of all these people looking for God in the world. D.A. Carson writes, When once we have defied God, we are not prepared to meet him. The Bible is not a book about human beings climbing out of the primordial ooze and trying somehow to find God. The Bible is a book instead of human beings who have defied God and now spend their entire existence running from and hiding from him, and yet somehow drawn to him at the same time because they are made in his image, because there is still the stamp of God upon them. So if they don't want him, they'll find other gods or a distorted, twisted view of the true God. That's the Bible's story of man. Whereas Paul says in Romans 1, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, we're looking for God like robbers are looking for the police. But God seeks out his rebellious children. God, see, I, mean, I want you to see the grace here. Judgment's coming. There will be judgment, but I want you to see the grace. God doesn't need to come down and find them. He could zap them from heaven, right? Amen? He, God can do that. He told them what the penalty would be. You'll die. So if they'd eaten the fruit and boom, they fell dead, say just like Ananias and Sapphira, nothing wrong would have been done. God would have been just and righteous and good. He doesn't do that. The ground could have opened up and swallowed them like Korah at his rebellion. doesn't happen. God himself comes down and he seeks out his children, afraid of him. This is the first fear in the universe, in time and space. And notice also, what is it that seeks them out? God's word is what seeks them out in their hiding. And it's what reveals them. God uses his word. He speaks And his word searches us out as we hide from him, afraid of him, and draws us out. It's his word. He speaks. The serpent asks the first question. Well, here God will ask the second question. Where are you? Of course, God knows where they are. 
But Adam doesn't know that God is looking for him, and now he does. They heard the sound of God coming in the cool of the day, and God calls out, where are you? And Adam just blurts it all out. Heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? God is, is seeking them out. There's going to be judgment, but not the full judgment they deserve. Because even here, God is showing himself to be one who seeks and saves the lost. Just like Jesus said in, in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Here God is seeking out the rebels. They've got a stupid idea. They're going to make some clothes and hide. <laughs> and God in his infinite love and mercy is delaying judgment delaying the promised death, and he's finding them out, even in their rebellion. Because point D, note, they are not repentant even here. They're scared of God, and they're telling them what happened, but they're not repentant. How do we know they're not repentant? They're blame-shifting. No one is owning up to anything. And if you remember from our series on sin and sanctification, that the hallmarks of true repentance as seen in 2 Corinthians 7, 11, or a right speaking about one's sin, true confession to agree with God about what happened. But here, the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Which is to say, God, it's really your fault because you gave me a bum wife. So really, it's kind of both our faults, God. I mean, I ate, silly me, but you gave me the woman. What were you thinking there? That's what he's saying. He's blaming God. This is not repentance. This is not contrition. There's a certain terror and fear of God. Oh, yes. There's a certain sort of dog in the corner with his tail between his legs, but you're not seeing repentance, which is why you're not going to see words of forgiveness. You will see grace. This is not repentance. So now we move on to judgment and grace. Judgment and grace. The woman in turn blames the snake. He's the only one who doesn't blame anybody. He just sort of sits there and takes it. His work is done. And so God, first to the snake, the serpent, and then to the woman, and then to the man, is going to utter the consequence. Now this is discipline, but it's grace. I want you to see that. It's far less than they deserve. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent is going to eat dust. Now we don't know if the serpent had wings before this or had legs before this. It was more like a reptile. We don't know. He's going to walk in the dust now. Interestingly, in the millennial kingdom, when, when nearly all of the effects of the curse are restrained, where people are living again to be a thousand years, where the lion and the lamb are laying together, where the child is playing by the hole of the asp. Even there, this is, this is, this is just striking in Isaiah 65, 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, that part of the curse, undone. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, undone. And dust shall be the serpent's food. Nope, still eat dust. Still eat dust. Serpents could be eating dust a long time. And there'll be perpetual enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Because we know that the serpent is the devil. We don't know whether the, the devil took possession of a snake or came into the garden in the physical form of a snake. We're not sure exactly how that works. But we know now when we're talking about the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, these are categories that Jesus uses in John 8, speaking to the Pharisees and the Jews who had believed in him, scare quotes, he says, you're of your father the devil, because your will is to do his will. Your desire is his desire. He was a liar from the beginning. What Jesus is saying is you're lying about me, and he was a liar from the beginning, so I can tell you whose dad you are. You're acting like your dad. He's a liar. You're a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning, Genesis 4, and you're trying to kill me. I, I know who your dad is. You're the seed of the devil. That's why racism doesn't make any sense. There's only two races in, in, in humanity. There are sons of the devil and sons of God. 
That's it. Everything else is just an issue of melanomen. But here also we have the announcement, the first announcement of the gospel, what is often called the proto-angelion. This seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the snake, even being bruised in its heel. Referring here in veiled terms, admittedly, to the crucifixion of the Son of Man where he is bruised, he is stung. But in the cross, he delivers the fatal blow, crushing the head of the serpent. This is, again, language the New Testament will pick up and use. Romans 16, 20, Paul writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What, what grace? What have these people done to deserve or warrant this? They've disobeyed, that they ran and hid, and then when they got found out, they blamed each other and God. No repentance, no faith, just sin and confusion. And God, for no other reason than he is a loving God. I want you to get the magnitude of the grace here. For no other reason than who he is, that he is a savior. He, he just throws out a promise. They've done nothing to provoke this. They've done nothing to warrant this. And here's, here's, here's a promise. I told you there's no going back to innocence. There's only going forward to the cross. And here God announces how this will be fixed. Oh, it's in veiled form. It's not clear. But this thread will get built upon and built upon through the Bible of the coming Messiah who will save his people from the wages of sin. And here, marvelously, the Lord announces in judgment salvation. Just marvel at that. In judgment, he's announcing salvation. Yes, there's judgment here, but there's so much grace. Okay, moving on to the woman. What's her curse going to be? Pain in childbearing and conflict in marriage. Now, those two Hebrew words, for your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. That pairing only occurs one other place in the Pentateuch, in the books of Moses, namely the very next chapter, chapter four. And in chapter four, God says to Cain um, in verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Same exact pairing. Only other place. In the first five books of the Bible, those two words occur together. It's here and back with Eve. And so from that, what we understand is being said is this. Just as she took the lead of the initiative here, her desire will continue to be to rule her husband, but she will be ruled by him. There'll be this strife in marriage that she will... She will desire to take the lead, to step up and rule, but he will rule her. Notice that first the relationship with God is broken, then the relationship with each other is broken. And then to the man, to Adam, God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you that you shall not eat it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall be, you shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. For from out of it you were taken. For your dust, the dust you will return. Cursed earth, toil and work, and mortality. All of creation now is affected by the fall. All of it. Disease enters the world. Bacteria enters the world. Paul can describe it elsewhere in Romans 8 as the creation is groaning, 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 subjected to futility. And, and, and the designated functions that Adam and Eve originally had to tend to the garden, to be fruitful and multiply, are now going to be difficult jobs. The woman's bearing of children will be painful. The man's working and tilling the ground will be difficult. What was originally going to be pure 
joy is now mixed with grief. Their relationships broken and ultimately mortality. Adam will return to the ground. Notice again that God singles Adam out here. There'll be more about this next week. Next week we'll be sort of following up on this message by talking about the, the consequence of Adam's first sin or what is often called original sin and the depravity of man. But notice God identifies Adam as the one who broke the commandment because the commandment was given to Adam because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. And so there's the curse. But in the curse is mercy. In the very first curse is an announcement of salvation. God is being gracious. They're not dead. And they're not going to die today. This is, this is grace and mercy. And now we see the first death. Now God had promised them that the day they ate, they would die. They don't die but something else does. We're not entirely sure what it is, but some animal gives its life. Verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. And here we have in principle the sacrificial system. Sin occurred. And an animal gives its life so that the man and woman do not have to and their nakedness is covered. See, the way forward is not that we save ourselves, that we knit together our fig leaves, that we you know, spruce ourselves up and look at ourselves just right and get the camera angle just right and we look okay. No, the way forward is God covers their shame. God is going to fix what has gone wrong. God is going to find the way of salvation. We aren't going to come up with it by committee his salvation is of the Lord and here God steps in and God kills an animal and God makes clothes and God covers their shame all unmerited grace to people who are still as far as we know unrepentant now this isn't forgiveness there's no words of forgiveness but God's giving them time he's giving them time to repent he's giving them time to think about what's happened Romans 2.4, do you not presume upon the riches and kindness of God knowing that his kindness and patience is meant to lead you to repentance? And so here God gives them a temporary fix. You're naked and ashamed. Let me cover that for you. Something needs to die today. I'll kill this animal. And then he ex- there's the expulsion from Eden. But this too is a mercy. This too is a mercy. Because had God allowed Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life in their corrupt, broken state, they would have been consigned to an eternity of misery and conflict, an an eternal marriage of fighting and vying, an eternal fighting against this world to make a living, to survive. No, it's a mercy. You see, sometimes God's discipline is mercy. He doesn't give us all that we deserve. He doesn't give us even a fraction of what we deserve. But the discipline itself is meant to make us think. So there is consequences. There is punishment, but not the one that was promised. A gospel has been announced, a coming descendant of the woman who will crush the serpent. Clothes are given. And the good news is this works. Turn, turn ahead a little later. Because in the next chapter, it goes from bad to worse fratricide, as brother kills brother. But then, at the end of chapter 4, somewhere between Genesis 3 and the end of chapter 4, I believe Adam repents. Adam comes to faith. Adam is now remorseful. If we read this, Four twenty-five. Adam again knew his wife, and she bore him a son, and his name is Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So God's delay of execution works. They don't immediately repent, but they do. And eventually this family starts to worship God. 
So he kicks them out of the garden, gives them a consequence, but he holds back death and ultimate judgment and gives them time to come to repentance, gives them time to turn from their sin. And they do. And they do. I said also that there is no way back. There's only a way forward. Turn, turn to Revelation 22. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up while we do this for our final song. We, we, we can't go back to innocence. We can't unknow what we already know. But we can press on forward as, as the woman's seed eventually comes and smashes the head of the serpent on the cross because the tree of life makes another appearance in the Bible. And after a new heaven, a new earth come down, and a new Jerusalem come down to earth in Revelation 21, pick up Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God at the Lamb through the middle of the streets of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything cursed, No more curse. You see how this is tying back up Genesis 3? No more curse. Here's the tree again. Full access. Gets better. No longer will there be anything cursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. And his name shall be on their foreheads, and night shall be no more. And they will have no need of a light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Remember those first three days of creation where there was light but no sun? We're back to that again. Full circle. And they will reign forever with him. Marvel at the grace of God. And would that we would learn the lesson that Adam and Eve took another chapter to learn. That what the Lord requires of us is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. That that's, that's what they should have done. Let us approach him in marvelous, wondering faith and contrition. Because you and I have all sinned. You and I have fallen short of the glory of God. But if we'll turn to look at the Son, broken spirits, contrite hearts in faith, We can have access to the tree of life. We can see God face to face. We can press through this cursed world to glory. Please stand with me and let's sing.